Turn to the book of Second Peter, the second chapter. Second Peter, the second chapter. And we got down to verse 2 in our lesson. I was amazed when I got home and I started with verse 19 and ended up with chapter 2, verse 2. That's five verses. And I thought I was going to cover all the second chapter and get into the third. So I kind of shocked myself when I got home. Tonight we'll try to do better and cover a little more territory. I believe we ought to read the first two verses just to get the connection because it would be kind of picking it up in the middle of a thought if we do not. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 we'll read. Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And it says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now that's where we uh, taught, and we taught on a portion of that second verse, and we talked about many falling for these false teachers of even John's day and Peter's day and the days of the apostles, many falling for their uh, false teachings and following their pernicious ways, or lascivious actually is what it is, sinful ways. But this last statement in verse 2 we didn't touch upon much. It says, by reason of whom... The way of truth shall be evil spoken of. In other words, the Christian faith or the Christian religion or the true fundamental Christian shall be evil spoken of. And do you know that is true today as well as it was then? Uh, we who stand for the Bible truths and the fundamentals of the faith, doctrines of grace, are evil spoken of because we stand for those things. And uh, we've had evidence of it in the last few days. Heard some people talking about, uh, you know, we as Baptists being so evil and so wicked because why? Why? We teach the Bible. We teach the truth. We teach the Word of God. And yet, because we teach there's a heaven, because we teach there's a hell, because we teach you can be saved by grace through faith, because we teach that you're not saved by works, lest any man should boast, just as the Bible states it, and by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And if you want to be evil spoken of, and the Christian religion uh, talked about as an evil thing, you stand for the truth and you'll see that there are certain uh, false prophets and false teachers that will certainly speak evil of you. In times past, we've been accused of everything under the sun. And why? Because of what I'm saying tonight. I, I stand here before you and try to take the Bible and rightly divide the word of truth and speak just what it says here. And people speak evil of it. And they do. Now look, uh, so we see in verse uh, 3 now, And through covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. Look at that. Because of their covetousness, they flatter their hearers with feigned words. They cause them to accept what they do, even though these false teachers are covetous in themselves. Let me read a verse of Scripture for you. Let's see. I believe it's in First Timothy chapter 6. It says in verse 5. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. Hold your place now where we're studying. If you turn to the reference, be sure you hold it because we'll come back abruptly to it and you'll miss it. But 1 Timothy 6, verse 5 says that these men, and, and Paul's telling about them as well as Peter had told about them, it says, 
perverse disputings, Paul says they're described this way, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. See? Even Paul said that there are some that, in other words, their covetousness, they suppose that gain is godliness. They, they use the argument because they can get a lot of money and because that they have great gain, that that counts for godliness, that that's equal to godliness. But it says godliness with contentment is great gain. So uh, it's not that you see prosperity as an evidence of godliness. Sometimes prosperity is wickedness as well. We know God prospers our way and supplies our needs, but that's a little different thing. He also, we also sometimes see the prosperity of the wicked, and we see the prosperity of false teachers and false preachers. Back in our text now, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Through covetousness shall they with feigned words, that is, they'll flatter their hearers, make merchandise of you. In other words, they deal in souls. They make merchandise. They, they sell and buy the souls of men. Because of their false teachings, they can actually put you on the market, so to speak. In other words, they're bidding for your souls to bring the, your, your lives into their false teachings. They're, they're trying to, to buy you out into their cult or sect, their false religion, their false teachings, and they're... they're Buying and selling, as far as souls are concerned, I don't mean literally go out and buy you. I'm not talking about that. But they're making merchandise of you. They're using you, in other words, for their advantage and their gain. Now I want you to notice in verse 3 again, the last part. Whose judgment, God says they have a day of judgment. Whose judgment now of a long time, now of a long time, lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. It says their judgment, the word lingereth not means it's not idle. It's not asleep. It slumbereth not. In other words, it's still working. Their judgment that is going to come upon them someday is, is rising up. Like, you know, you put the yeast in the, in the red dough, and it's ever fermenting, isn't it? Their judgment is active. It's not idle. The, the judgment of the wicked is well at work to bring about a final rising up to, uh, to the time that it will be executed. Let me give you a verse of Scripture that will help you on this. In the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, chapter 2, if you will. Romans chapter 2. I want you to get this. <clears throat> and verse 5. It says, but after, Romans 2, verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath. See, the judgment is not idle. It's treasured up. It's just like you would be keeping it. It's, it's still working. Wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, the hard-hearted sinner, and this would include the false teacher and false professor as well, is hardness of heart and his impenitent heart, unrepentant heart, and uh, is treasuring up, it says. Treasures up. In other words, it's not idle. It's being built up and laid up. It's like you would store this up to be finally uh, recognized or finally accounted. 
treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, God will one day let all this judgment that is, uh, all this sin that is due judgment, his wrath will be poured out upon it when Jesus comes again in wrath and in judgment upon the ungodly. In other words, don't think just because God has not judged the sinner and the false uh, professors and the false prophets and the false teachers, just because he hasn't done it today, that he will not at some point in time. He says they're just laying it up. That agrees with this verse in Second Peter. Now look again in verse 3. It says, Whose judgment now of a long time, they've been laying it up a long time, praising it up a long time, lingereth not, it's not idle, it's still working, and their damnation slumbereth not. See, God says there's going to be a day that they'll have to meet uh, an answer for their false teachings and for speaking evil of the Christian way and the, the way of faith by which they speak evil of. And they subvert, subvert their hearers. And they, it says here that they, uh, with feigned words, make merchandise of you. Have you ever noticed a lot of these false cuffs? You couldn't out-reason them and out-talk them anywhere in the world. The only stand you and I have against the, those, the cults round about us, those that teach the falsehoods, is to stand for the word of God. Because you can't out-argue them. In fact, you can't out-reason them. They have everything so fixed that, brother, they've got it laid out, and they're, they're professionals in their falsities, in their presenting their falsehoods. It's just like, you know, uh, people swallowing that kind of truth they sugarcoat all of their lies so that you just swallow it all in one dose, you know. They've got so many lies tied up in there that they'll put a little sugar around it, they'll put a little truth around it, and just a partial truth, and you'll swallow the whole thing, or the lie and all. That's what they do. That's how they get people, deceive people. It's just like, uh, you know, when you take a, a dose of medicine, sometimes the, the medicine is covered up with a sugar or something. Well, they sugarcoat all their uh, bitterness and all their error and their evil to get you to swallow the pill of, of, the, of the falsehood that they have. And they've got a way of doing it. So don't try to argue with those people that uh, come against you with false uh, ideas about the Bible. If they deny the deity of Christ, you know they're false. If they deny the Word of God as the inspired Word of God, you know they're false. If they deny salvation by grace through faith, you know they're false. See? If they try to put you in, under a system of works and keeping law and rites and ceremonies and circumcision and so on, as we studied in Galatians earlier, you know they're false. You don't have to wonder about it. Take God's Word for it. And make up your mind where you're going to stand. And then stand on the Word of God. And so it says here that their judgment is coming. It's not idle. Look in verse 4. Now, we're going to see in verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 things about judgment. And we're going to see, first of all, that God uh, judged the angels that sinned. Now, look in uh, verse 4. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And this is just a, notice that's not the end of the sentence if you're looking at your Bible. 
You see, that's not the end of it. And then he goes on to another example. And spared not the old world, and, but saved Noah the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's not the end of it either. See? In other words, what I'm, let's slow down now. We'll start back. We'll start back with verse 4. That I want you to see that, that now Peter takes one example after another and says if God didn't spare the angels and if God didn't spare Noah, uh, uh, the world in Noah's day, I shouldn't say Noah, that he saved Noah, but if he didn't spare the world in Noah's day, and then if he didn't spare those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, then certainly he will not spare these false prophets and these false teachers. All he's doing is citing references to where God did judge the wicked. And he's saying, well, if God didn't spare them, well, certainly he will not spare the false teachers. But now then, since I've said that, let's deal with these, each one of these uh, various conditions wherein God judged the wicked, even the wicked angels, the angels that sin. And we'll take it verse by verse. And I want you to look at verse 4 again. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, God did not spare the angels that sinned. Now, the, the Bible tells us that they, in Jude, look in Jude, the book of Jude, verse 6. Jude 6, it's right on over, right before Revelation, just a few pages, probably four or five pages more in your Bible, past where you're studying. And hold your place where we're studying. It says, And the angels, you have Jude 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, their first principality, their first position that God gave them, in heaven, the angels in heaven, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in, in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. So Jude is saying much the same thing as Peter saying. That they left their first habitation, they left their principality, they left their dominion, they left their place where God had uh, placed them, and they uh, had failed, and they sinned against God. What this sin was, we don't know. Probably they wanted to exalt themselves above God, like Satan wanted to exalt himself. Probably they wanted a better, they were not satisfied with their present position. Probably they became proud. And the reason I'm saying that is because the example was set by their leader of that very thing. And so the Bible is telling that God did not spare them, but cast them down to hell. Now I want you to notice the word hell here. The word hell in this particular place is the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. I don't mean that you don't find hell in the English language in the New Testament. I'm saying this is the only time that the original... Greek word uh, uh, is used here, and it means Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, Tartarus, or if you want to call it that way. And it means a place where the, the wicked spirits of these uh, angels are kept or reserved. It's not Sheol, it's not the grave, it's not Hades, and it's not Gehenna. It's a different word altogether. The only time that this word in the original, in the Greek, is used in the New Testament. Right here, you're looking at it. The only place. T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. And it means a place where they, the, these uh, angels that sin, where their spirits are reserved in judgment to be 
to be judged. They're reserved. They're imprisoned. They're kept. God has kept them there. They're in chains. Chains means you can't get loose, doesn't it? But they're chained by darkness. And it says, reserved to be reserved unto judgment. Now, isn't that what Jude said? Jude said that, that uh, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he had reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. That's exactly what Jude is saying. So this place where it says he cast them down into hell, he put them in a spiritual prison house where they're going to be kept, and they're going to be kept until uh, the day of judgment. And then it says in verse uh, 5, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we know that refers to Noah's day. The wicked world in Noah's day, God saved Noah the eighth person, that is, eight, eight souls were saved. It, mean, it doesn't mean he was the eighth preacher of righteousness. It means there were only eight saved in Noah's day, him being the eighth. Because it, uh, God saved Noah's three sons and their three wives, their wives would make six, and Noah's wife would be seven, and Noah would be the eighth. So uh, that's the way that is calculated there. So save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. And he brought in the, the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And turned the cities, verse 6 now, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Look at that. Did you know that those wicked cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, that God destroyed, he says, I want you to look back to them as an example of what God uh, feels against sin, and he wants us to see them as an example of God's judgment against the wickedness. The very same things that brought destruction upon those wicked cities of the plain, and God says they're an example to anyone that would after live ungodly. Someone says, why doesn't God do that? God is going to judge those individuals one of these days, and he's in no hurry. He has all the time there is. He has, you know, God has all time. If you and I do something, we've got to do it while we have time and opportunity. But God has all the time there is. He's in no hurry. There's a scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes that says, Because sentence, now listen carefully, I believe it's 8 verse 11. He says, Because sentence against an evil work, is not executed speedily, therefore the heart, singular, of the sons, plural, the sons of men, is fully set in them to do evil. Think of that for a moment. In other words, because God hasn't executed a sentence or judgment upon men, they think he never will. See? They think that they're just, uh, you know, that's a bluff, that God's not going to do anything about it. But God is sure to judge sin just as he's sure to save and reward the righteous. If you believe there is a, a salvation for the righteous and a security and assurance for those that are saved, there's also a judgment for those that are lost. It can't be, it can't be anything else. Think of it for a moment. If you, have a, if you have a day, you have a night. If you have good, you have bad, Right? If you have what's right, you have what is evil, unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous. The just and the unjust. The clean and the unclean. Look at all the opposites. A heaven, there's a heaven, someone says, yeah, but there's not a hell. 
Not so. If there's, if there's a hell, there's a heaven also. So turn it around, reverse it. So it works both ways. And God has always had that uh, uh, plan of, of bringing these opposite for their own value and placing the due reward on one and the due uh, punishment upon the other. And God will punish evil. He will judge evil. And it doesn't mean that because he hasn't that he, he uh, will not do it at some time. And yet, the Bible teaches that judgment is God's strange work. You can read in the Old Testament in the Prophets. What does it mean, strange work? It means a work that he takes no pleasure in doing. God says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in that. God, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for our sins, the Bible says, according to the Scriptures. So these, these are examples here in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 of when God's patience wears out. In other words, God was fed up with the angels of sin. God was fed up with those wicked ones in Noah's day. God was fed up, verse 6, with, and he turned them into ashes and condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those uh, that after should live ungodly. And he's applying this, Peter is applying this to these false prophets and false teachers of his day who uh, rioted in the daytime, who lived in pleasure and luxury and sin and counted themselves as being good. And they turned the true Christian faith into a falsehood and into covetousness and into lasciviousness and into idolatry and into all perversions of things that are true and right. And God says that he was just, he's just as fed up with them as he was with those cities and with uh, the wicked in Noah's day and with the angels of sin. And they were just as sure to have judgment come as this judgment was executed upon these others. Look in verse uh, 7. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he delivered Lot. In the New Testament, God calls him here just Lot, that he was just. That means he was righteous. That means he was a good man. Right? Now, look at that. When we look back in the Old Testament, we find Lot certainly not living a good life. We find Lot in the midst, in dwelling in the city, in that wicked city of Sodom. We find Lot there having a position of authority because it says Lot sat in the gate. We know how he got down there. His eyes looked toward the well-watered plain. He looked in the wrong direction. The Bible says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He moved in the wrong direction. And finally, up, finally he ended up in Sodom. And finally he got a position. He sat in the gate, which shows him to be like the elders would sit in the gate for judgment. They, this was the place where the elders would... Uh, um, the civil laws were carried out. So Lot sat in the gate. He may have been, even been the mayor of the city. And it doesn't look much like that he was uh, a very good man being in the midst of that wickedness. And it forewarns us not to get in the wrong place. Lot was in the wrong place. And God had to drag him out by the, the two angels were sent. You know, if you read back in Genesis 19, you'll find that... Uh, the angel said to Lot, he says, get your sons and, your, and their wives and get your, all your family out of here. 
And he seemed to his sons-in-laws as one that mocked when Lot says God is going to destroy the city, get out of this place. And they laughed at him. And he had two daughters there in the house, and the angels came and they said, we're going to lead you out. They took Lot by the hand and Lot's wife, that's one of them, and then he took the two daughters, the, the other one took the two daughters, one in each hand. You know, there's always just enough hands to deliver us. There were two angels and four people, right? Two angels with two strong hands, and there were four people. And God always sends just enough hands for our salvation and our deliverance. And so he delivered just Lot out of the, out of the uh, vexed with a filthy conversation of the wicked. Notice that, that Lot was in the wrong place, and Lot was vexed. It disturbed him with this filthy conversation of the wicked. It says, For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Their conversation, their walk of life, their unlawful deeds, the way they lived, just really grieved Lot, and yet he put up with it. See, he compromised a great deal. And so God says, I, Lot, I've got to get you out of this. So he sent his two angels to drag him out of that wicked city before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a wonderful statement in the next verse. It says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Look at that. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. I like that. The Lord knoweth how. He knoweth how. We've already studied how he, he reserves the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. We've been studying the side of, of God's judgment and wrath and punishing the wicked. We all have seen very clearly that he is able to, to judge the, the wicked, whether it be the wicked angels, the angels that sin, whether it be the wicked uh, world in Noah's day, whether it be the wicked cities in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he also knows how to deliver look, the godly out of temptations, out of these judgments. Someone says, well, you, you see then God's assurance there, don't you? You know, if God is going to destroy this place, he's going to deliver us out of it. Jesus said that there will be a day that, the, that this world was, is going to be judged. Jesus speaks of a great tribulation. Jesus speaks of that great tribulation such as men have never known. The book of Revelation shows us tribulation upon this earth. But before that happens, we see that the church, the Christian people of this day and age of grace, are going to be taken out before that happens. He knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. See, you and I today are waiting for deliverance at the coming of Christ. He's going to come in the air, the trumpet will sound, and the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise, the graves are going to be opened, all the dead in Christ shall be resurrected, and we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord are going to be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture, we call it. In other words, the church is going to be caught out and taken up. And then there's going to be great tribulation upon this earth. Now, there's a lot of folks trying to put us in that great tribulation now. You're not in it now. It's bad enough in this world, but you're not in it yet. It's going to come later. And thank God it's going to come after we're taken out. We're not going to go through the tribulation. 
So these scare tactics that certain groups are using today, now what are you going to do when this happens? Don't let them scare you. You're not going to be here anyway. It's going to be bad enough. We know there's sufferings all over the world. There's wars and rumors of wars. But when that great tribulation comes, the Lord says, I'm going to take you out before that happens. Now, these cults teach that Jesus has already come, one of them in particular, and that we're in the middle of that great tribulation right now, and that they're the faithful witnesses that God has sent, which is not true, because those witnesses are, are taken out of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. They're Jews. There are 12,000 out of each tribe, making the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. They are the witnesses. The Jews are the witnesses. It's going to turn back to them instead of the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are the witnesses. Jews and Gentiles. There's Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Three things in the world today. The church of God can be made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But there's only two kinds of people in the world, really, the Jews and Gentiles. There's only two kinds of people in another sense, the saved and lost. And both, can, uh, uh, both Jews and Gentiles can be in the church of God, and both Jews and Gentiles can be saved or lost. But what we're seeing here is the fact that God is able to deliver us out of the tribulation, and he's promised he's going to do that. Christ has promised that. We look for the coming of Jesus, and things are getting in shape for the Lord to come. We have all these things pointing to the fact that the, the Word of God predicts the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know. No man knows the day nor the hour, but I'll tell you this, that we ought to be prepared as individuals for Christ to come for his own. We ought to remember that he's, uh, we need to be ready. To be ready, we have to be saved. We have to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You can make preparation while you're here. You know, you don't have to wait. Uh, you can be. You can say, "I'm prepared." We're not as good as we'd like to be, but we're safe in the arms of Jesus, and we come under the shelter of His wings, as we sang tonight, and we can have peace with God. And you can have it by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. You know, God didn't make it complicated for you to enter into safety. The Bible says that He, uh, as many as received Him, to them gave Him power to become the sons or children of God, even to them that believe on His name. Believe, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's God's promise. What do you have to do? Do what He said to do. Put your faith in Him. Trust Him. And... Uh, you know, we used to teach our little boys and girls in Sunday school, and I trust we still do. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we say we get boys and girls to, to be saved by teaching them that verse. That we teach them that God loved them, that Jesus died for them, that he wants to save them, that they can have everlasting life. It works the same way for grown-ups. Works the same way for anyone. And we ought to be faithful in, in those uh, simple messages from the Bible. And yet, there's so many that have made it so complicated that you think you have to be a college professor or have a degree in theology or something in order to understand what the plan of salvation is. Not so. The Bible tells you you can, you can be saved. That Jesus loved us. He laid down his life for us. We need to believe on him and trust him as Lord and Savior. And we need to have a true, uh, real, 
of faith in the Lord, to really trust Him as our only hope of salvation. All right, look at this. It says in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Verse 10, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness, He's describing now again these people that we've been talking about. About Verse 2 says, Many shall follow their pernicious ways. Verse 3 says they're covetous. It tells us uh, of their nature, of their, their character. And verse 10 says they, they walk after the flesh. So they walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Now look, here's their character. They despise government. They don't want anyone to... Be in dominion. They despise dominion. They don't want any laws. They want to be free to break every law in the books. They want to uh, have their own way about everything. Presumptuous are they. Presumptuous. They presume everything for themselves. They're self-willed. They want to live for self. And they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. You see, anyone that is in a place of prominence, in a place of... uh, uh, Leadership, they speak evil of everyone, even if they're good. You know, you and I have a tendency to say too many evil things about our leaders. Right? We, we all have a tendency to knock those that are in power and control. And really, we should, what did Paul say we should do? We should pray for them, right? For kings and for leaders and rulers. And I know we have enough wicked ones up there in high places But we ought to pray that God will move in some way to, in his providence, to eliminate some of those and to put more good men in the places of leadership. And we, we should, as Christians, pray for the leaders of our nation. But these people speak evil of dignities. Now, verse 11 says, For as angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. The angels... The good angels do not even accuse, though they would have a right to do so. You see, sometimes we're so uh, belligerent in our attitudes toward others. We need to take the examples of the uh, the example of the good angels here. Look at this: angels which are great in power might not uh, and might bring not railing accusation. You see that against them before the Lord. Let's get some references here. Look in the Jude 8 and 9. Jude 8 and 9. It says this, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion. Jude is describing the same people that Peter is. And speak evil of dignities. That's what Peter was saying. Yet Michael, now here's the example. Even Jude gives us the same example. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation. Michael, the archangel, didn't even bring against Satan, the devil, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebukes thee. You see that? He says, you're wrong. God rebukes you. The Lord rebukes thee. In the argument of Michael uh, with Satan, and I could go back and discuss what they were disputing about, the body of Moses. And that would take a whole, another whole lesson, not give you a hint. No one knows where Moses was buried. Probably the devil wanted his 
place of burial known so the children of Israel would, would make another idol and come and worship that place instead of worshiping God. And God says, no, I'm going to bury him in secret and you'll not know where he is. The devil wanted it known and, and Michael says, no, God's, God's will is that we don't know where it is. And of course, this is just speculation, but it's a possibility. But let's get back to this, Second Peter chapter 2. It says, Whereas angels, verse 11, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, these as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Speak evil of things they understand not. Well, you know, you could apply this to, to your life as a Christian. You could apply this to, the, to where you stand as a Christian. You know, if you go about and say, well, we believe and preach the Bible, and we believe that you're saved by grace through faith, and you'll find people that will speak evil of that. They don't understand that that is Bible truth. They want to pervert it. They want to twist it and change it. You speak of the fact that the Lord has his sheep and he's going to take care of them and that they're secure in him. And they'll say, no, that's not so. You see? And they, they do not understand that those that belong to the Lord, that the Bible says, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Some belong to the Lord. And he, Jesus says, I'm... I have some sheep that are my fold, and he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring. He said, I have to bring them in too. And that's why you and I are here, to be witnesses and to, and to uh, speak to people and tell them that the Lord wants to bring them into the uh, uh, fold of Christ so that they'll be safe and sound and secure. And he says, I'm going to watch over my sheep when I get them in that fold. He says, I'm going to take care of them. And he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. But these, as natural brute beasts, it says they speak evil of things that they understand not. Why is it that people have so little understanding about the, the things of God? Because they don't want to simply take God's word and God's promise for it. That's the reason. And they want to add their own speculation and their own... Uh, uh, preconceived ideas and say, well, I always thought, you know. Have you ever noticed how the world has it all figured out as to what the Bible says? Have you ever noticed that how, how smart they are about the Bible, which they know nothing about? Have you ever seen that? You see it every day. Some fellow start talking to you about the Bible and he doesn't know a thing in the world about it. He start telling you about something that, that you know better because you've been taught the Word of God, and he doesn't know a thing in the world about it, and yet he'll try to tell you that he knows something, something about it. And he'll take some far-out example and act like he understands the whole bit just because he's brought up something that's a little difficult to understand. You know, if I go to, to a fellow, if I go down here to the doctor's office, you know, I don't go in there and tell the doctor, I don't understand all those medical terms. I'm just as lost as a goose when I go in there. I have to have him to put it in layman's language where I can understand. I say, what does that mean? That I'm sick? Do I have a sore throat? He may use a name that long to describe, describe my condition. And I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't know whether it's on top of my head or the bottom of my feet. Right? Why is it that people will... You'll go to, to a professional when it comes to your body and say, well, they know what, what it is. 
you'll go to a man if you go to get your income tax filled out, you'll go to a CPA because he knows the laws and the rules and the regulations. Then when you want spiritual things, where, where do you go? You're supposed to go to somebody that studied it and knows something about it. Instead of just taking the, the word uh, on the street that's generalized, you know. Go to someone that knows. Go to the Word of God. Go to one that preaches and teaches it. Go to the Bible yourself. And it's written in language where you can understand it, too. Study it for yourself and see what God has to say about it for yourself. And then be taught it. And so, oh, our time is gone. I'm sorry. We'll pick up with verse uh, 13 in our next lesson. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 13. But what we're saying here is that sometimes that these false preachers and false prophets and false teachers, we've seen their character, we've seen that God says he's going to judge them, and we've, we've seen the way they react to the truth of God. 